Hello and welcome to Keep Swimming. This episode contains trigger warnings for themes of addiction, specifically heroin addiction relating to the film Train Spotting. If you or anybody that you know is struggling with these issues, um, please seek advice on the NHS website. This episode also contains spoilers to both Train Spotting and T2 Train Spotting. Hello and welcome to Keep Swimming. Uh, my name is Chloe and today I am joined by... Me, Max. Hello. And me, Billy. Hello. How we? How we doing? How How we... Uh... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm alright today. I've I've kind of had a bit of an emotional rollercoaster. One of my mates thought he was going to UCLan to do his foundation year and then he changed his mind and then he changed his mind again. Um, so it's a bit of a rollercoaster. I've had a bit of a <laughs> up and down with that today. So that's interesting. <laughs> yep. Nothing like a yo-yo. Nothing like a yo-yo. Yeah. Um, and just a little bit of a shout out to everybody getting results yeah. today and yesterday. Um, no, no matter what you got, congratulations for getting through an extremely difficult academic year. Yeah. Um, we've we've been there. We've been, <laughs> me and Billy have been doing a course. I mean, we probably don't know how difficult it's been for some of you guys doing GCSEs and A-levels, but just whatever you got, well done. Congratulations, students. Today, um, we're discussing one of my favourite films of all time, actually, um, because it is the 25th anniversary of Train Spotting, the first Train Spotting movie. Um, so I'm going to just start off the conversation by asking when you guys first became aware of this film, because I feel like it's not one that people openly recommend to others as a feel good film. <laughs> absolutely not yeah <laughs> absolutely let's, not let's go to you first but when would when was your first what was your first train spotting experience went down to preston station saw a train <laughs> you're such a comedian <laughs> billy billy first train spotting experience when did you first become aware of the film i mean i was aware about it from a fairly young age just because my dad being from Edinburgh and being an avid reader has a copy of Train Spotting the book on the, and ha- it has been there for many years and the cover art which was um one of the older editions it's kind of got two guys with like skulls sort of painted on there painted across their face it's quite eye-catching and I think from there I was just you know reading about movies on the internet I, I became aware of Train Spotting, but I mean, considering the content of the movie, it's, uh, it wasn't exactly one for me at that particular time, at that age. But I think when I was, I first watched it when I was 13, 14, when I bought it on, D- when I bought it on DVD. And yeah, I was just, you know, totally swept up in it. I like that yeah. Billy's just admitting to a casual felony. Like, yeah, I bought it when I was 14. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so I'm like, good. yeah, come at me. <laughs> So, uh, have you actually read the book, Billy? I've read sections of the book. I think I, th- I saw the movie, and then it was quite funny. My dad said, "Have you ever tried to read the book?" And I went, "No, I, I, I don't know what the book's like." And he said, "Oh, <laughs> here." He gave he got it off the bookshelf. He gave it to me, and he said, "Try and read the first page." 
And <laughs> with a great big smile on his face, I thought, okay, what's going on here then? And I tried to read it and then I was completely stumped because the fascinating thing about the book is that it's written phonetically with, In Scottish, with yeah. a very strong Scottish accent. So it's written exactly how it sounds, which can make it very hard to make out a lot of the words. I mean, after a while, you do get adjusted to it. But I mean, my, my dad like totally understood it the first time he read it because he was obviously, he grew up, you know, with the slang, with, with, yeah. the, with the dialect. But, you know, for somebody who isn't so familiar with it, it can be quite a, it isn't, it isn't exactly what I would call an accessible novel. <laughs> I remember picking picking it up in bookshops and stuff and thinking, you know, after I'd seen the film, I thought, oh, I might give this a go. And then doing the same thing, turning to the first page and thinking, what what language is this? <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's written in some sort of nonsense. <laughs> but then once you kind of start sounding it out, you're like, oh, great. Yeah, it's a, it's a phonetic Scottish accent. And... Um, I mean, uh, he's done quite a few works, hasn't he, with the same characters? I think there's three in total in the series. Yeah, what, isn't one of them called Porno? I, I... Yeah, one of them's Porno. There's Train Spotting Porno, and then there's an, there's another one which I think was the basis of T two. Love Terminator two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently it's called Dead Origins... Trousers, according to the internet. Oh, the Skag, the Skag Boys, the Skag Boys, and there's also Dead Men's Trousers by Irvin Welsh. All right, and I, I think they're all kind of written in a similar style. I think I seem mm. to recall. Um, was it a play first? Was it on this on stage first? Because I seem to remember something about. Um, it might not have been a play first, but it definitely had a, a theatre life after the films. I'm not quite sure what um, what there was of it before. Have any of you think... seen it live? No, I, have, I haven't seen the stage adaptation. I want to say that, I mean, the book was published in 1993. Apparently, mm. the, it was adapted for the stage fairly soon after publication. So the stage adaptation might actually have even preceded the film. Yeah. So what, what about you, Max? What was your first um, exposure to train spotting? I have had train spotting on my shelf in my DVD cupboard. Yeah, I've got a DVD cupboard. Who doesn't? Um, for the longest time. I'm holding the DVD in my hands right now, you know, and I've never actually opened it. And then it came onto the cinema, the 25th anniversary, <laughs> at my local view. And you're both giggling because you know what's happening. And I decide I'm going to invite my girlfriend, Danny, to go and see Train Spotting. And um, I'll be honest, I wasn't fully. Um, prepared for quite the um, how explicit the film is in its discussion of kind of heroin addiction, drug addiction, and kind of getting by in you know a shitty, shitty environment. But Danny definitely was not <laughs> to the point that it it made her very sick, <laughs> oh, and she ended up having like a little bit of a panic attack in the car after the film. Oh, Which no. wasn't I bet you know, were very popular. <laughs> it was yeah. an understatement to put not an understatement. It was an under it, it was a miscalculation, to put it mildly. It so did you not mistake. know what it was about? No, I, I knew it was about heroin addiction, but I, I said to Danny, oh, it's about addiction and stuff in in um in Edinburgh. You might find it interesting. And she was like, Oh, okay. She thought it was about somebody who went out and, you know 
spots trains. <laughs> like some sad old man that watches trains. But um, I think the moment I realised that I'd fucked up quite badly was when Ewan McGregor's character decides to um, have a swim in the toilet. <laughs> the worst toilet in Scotland scene. Oh. The worst oh, toilet in Scotland scene. God. Yeah. <laughs> Mark <laughs> Renton having a swim. <laughs> for, a, for a reptile depository. Oh my god, it's so bad. It's funny when you actually, when you actually describe a lot of the scenes in train spotting on paper, it's actually just like, wow, this 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 really is a a unique movie. <laughs> it really is. I I think that the movie itself is brilliant. I think that it, it discusses if issues that are difficult. And I, I think it's it's a difficult movie, but it's a difficult movie intentionally you know you're not meant to sit down and enjoy it you're meant to sit down and fucking learn something from it oh i I don't know i mean i don't know i don't know if there's not supposed to be like an element of entertainment in there i mean it's 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 usually described as a dark comedy and i think that's yeah that's very fair it's got a lot of humor in it about danny boyle's directing style and the kind of energy that the performances bring to the film that makes it, there are moments of extreme enjoyment and and almost hilarity for me in that film. Like, even though it's incredibly dark um, and grim, there are moments, I mean, even like the, the toilet scene, the worst toilet in Scotland scene, that's disgusting. But at the same time, the way that it's shot and the direction of it, it's almost like magic realism. There's something quite fascinating about it that kind of encapsulates the experiences of the character so much better than showing it just being extremely grim Mm. i mean when he goes into the toilet i mean it then it then transports to that uh to him in like this glistening blue sea underwater and it's got this very whimsical music in the background and it's kind of you're, you're being shown the hallucination as he's witnessing it and uh, mm. I remember reading an interview with Danny Boyle where he said that he didn't, he didn't just want to capture how grim, you know, the, the, the drug addiction and the drug scene was. He wanted to capture the, the euphoria of it. And I think in doing mm. that, you're, you're able to see how these guys get so totally consumed and roped into this, yeah. to this lifestyle. You, you understand and you sympathize with what they're going through, and then you root for them to try and break out of that. I mean, there's that. There's the all-famous line in it where Renton's describing what it feels like, and he says, take the best orgasm you've ever had, multiply it by a yeah. thousand, and you're still nowhere near what it feels like. And yeah. I think the movie does a really good job of capturing that, which helps you understand their struggle so much more. I think it's yeah. not unfair to say there are elements of comedy to it. I think if I watched it again, I'd probably think it was a lot funnier. But, you know, there's this unique kind of hilarity of watching it with somebody who is not even remotely prepared for the <laughs> diabolical shitstorm that is about to take place yeah. in front of their eyes for the next, like, hour and 15 minutes or however long it is. Yeah, it's not a long movie. I think that was... I mean, I've seen it a few times, but the thing that I'm, you know, consistently well by even after having seen it multiple times is just how much it packs in in 85 in 85 minutes it feels it feels far longer than it is because and not in a bad way yeah it just it it 
it, there's so much in there you feel like it it's longer than it actually is but actually it's just packed a ton of different stuff in there and you know with the famous lust for life montage right at yeah. the start of the movie it just yeah. hits the ground running literally right from the word yeah, go literally the, the kinetic energy of his probably one of my favorite like sequences in cinema that opening sequence where you've mm-hmm. got where you've got the the famous the soundtrack to this film we'll talk about that a little bit later but the soundtrack that just goes straight in with iggy pop at the beginning <laughs> first foot on the ground and then you've got that famous speech that renton does you know the choose life speech kind of mocking the choose life movement i mean you know everyone kind of remembers it from george michael wearing the choose life t-shirt in his in one of his music videos or something like that um that was kind of prevalent at the time and and he's kind of making a mockery of it saying all these things that he wants to choose um and it's it's just i mean i remember the first time i watched the film i think i i watched it because i knew at that time that i was going to study film at university um and it was near the end of my second year of college and and i i kind of knew what I wanted to do I think I was still waiting on results and things like that but I knew that I wanted to get into film and I was making a conscious effort to kind of branch out a little bit and watch things that I might not have been originally comfortable watching yeah and I I remember the controversy around the film hearing about that more than I was hearing about what the actual substance of the film was because I remember there was a big uh, kind of debate over how much it glorified well i'm putting i'm doing air quotes by the way glorified um drug addiction and kind of made it seem like something fantastical and and maybe there is a bit of something to that but i don't personally think that this film glorifies drug abuse no i absolutely i i think that there's the scene where he does the montage about getting used like get trying to abstain from heroin Mm-hmm. like the montager is like step one you know preparation get all of this stuff all this water like he's gonna he's gonna rehabilitate himself he's gonna go cold turkey and then he's like final step the most important get some heroin to get rid of the heroin addiction and like <laughs> the, the broken like the broken barricade he's just built and i think that's yeah. it's, it's a really comedic way to kind of go yeah it's, it's a very difficult thing to break out of heroin addiction you know you, you you're gonna be your own worst enemy kind of yeah. i think this film is a lot about you know being your own worst enemy because yeah, totally. a lot of what renton does is kind of just you think he's gonna get better and you root for him and then he just does this to himself again and again and yeah. again all the way through the film and it, it's kind of like that um dark cloud of heroin is always kind of gonna it's looming gonna... over him yeah. constantly yeah you can you can see even in in the sequences where he's bettering himself but his friends are, are still in it um and the way that they see him differently and you can almost see the physical cloud above him you know he can go back at any moment yeah. um it's there's something really powerful about that kind of showing the the toing and froming but I remember I, I, what I was going to say before is, um, you know, I'd heard about the controversy, but I'd never actually seen the film. And I think when I sat down to actually watch it fully, I, I, I it made me really emotional. I remember being like very affected by it 
at the yeah. end and and kind of blown away by it really and just being kind of like that was probably the best film I've ever seen at that time. I think it yeah. was like a proper moment of holy shit, this is the one of the best films I've ever seen um, for multiple reasons. I think it, it's got such it has such an effect on people because you don't have to have gone through what the characters have gone through to feel empathy for them. It kind of forces you to feel it because it's art. art. I think this, this film, you could say all this stuff about it. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's art. It's brilliant. It, it, Mm. it makes you feel things. Even if you're like massively anti like heroin and anti drug addiction, you know, you kind of, have those feelings like they, you know they're just useless druggy scum you know you mm. can't help but feel sorry for them i think i yeah. think it'd be very very difficult to find someone who watching this film came out of it and went yeah okay and because yeah. it is hard hitting it, it it is a hard hitting movie yeah yeah and i think one of the one of the real successes of it is that it you know we laugh about how at certain points in the movie, it real just plummets to just the depths of depravity. And like in the toilet scene, and the scene where he gets wrapped up in the carpet because he's just overdosed, or the scene where he's yeah. going through withdrawal and he sees the dead baby crawling across the ceiling, oh, and yeah. uh, or, or the scene where they find the dead kid uh, from he's died mm-hmm. from neglect because they were too busy shooting up. You know, there are some was, real horrific yeah. things. There. But but there is also moments of great levity, great humour in it that kind of balance it mm. out and keep you invested, keep you entertained, despite, you know, some of the, you know, endurance testing moments. And then actually it ends on a real kind of optimistic note. Yeah. And it's wonderful what his narration does at the end. It kind of mirrors the sort of the mock, the mock in the opening, in the opening montage, his, you know, narration of the choose life speech is, is, is it's mocking in tone. You know, he gets to the end of it and goes, why the fucking hell would I do a thing like that? You know, yeah. You know, why would why, why would I choose any of that stuff? I, I chose I chose to choose heroin, and then at the end, he actually he starts repeating those things that he mm. talked about in in the opening scene. But he's talking about it seriously, like he wants to check, like he wants to actually choose those things and make a change in his life. I I think it's interesting how he only decides to choose and improve his life once heroin has led him to a lot of money. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's kind of, yeah. of the. That's kind of the why the ending is so ambiguous. I think it works on two levels because, on the one hand, it's you know on the story perspective, it's a man who's run off with all of his mates' money, and you don't really know what's going to happen next. But that cliffhanger works in the, you know, in the the metaphorical way. If we don't know if he is going to get clean, we are in the lurch as an audience, um, and you'd hope for the best. You'd hope, oh, you know. Now he's got this money, he's going to turn his life around. But we don't know that as an audience. And I think that that's what makes it, that's what hit for me, I think. It was like, yeah. there's almost a truthfulness to that. You don't know whether he's going to be okay. There isn't a, an, a resolution. There's just a hope. You know what really hit me? When that mm-hmm. baby died. <laughs> that's the bit that hit me i'm Holy not sure shit. about anyone else well, well well i think structurally in the film it's, it's it is a it does act as a wake-up call and it acts as a wake-up mm. call for the characters because it's the first time you really show sick boy showing any emotion yeah, yeah. I, I think that scene that. reduced me to tears and i'm not afraid to admit that i i shed one or two tears it's one really... or two for that baby 
I think it's the graphicness of it because I remember, you, you know, there's not many films that would show the the baby, show the the corpse in the way that Train Spotting does, and and also the the way that it haunts him afterwards in the in the scene where he's trying to, um, uh, what's it called? Withdraw. Withdraw, yeah. The within the withdrawal scene when he's seeing it on the ceiling, that's almost it's it's like it's horror movie, um, mm. and it's very explicit. And you know, I think there's a some people might make the argument of, oh no, you didn't, you know, you don't have to show the baby; it would have been just as effective without. But I don't no, think it would no. have been. I think it's the reality of of seeing that. And I remember when the scene came on and. And being quite shocked that they went there, and and feeling sick to my stomach at it. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, but you're 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 right, Billy. It's that it's that moment, the way that where it comes in in the plot is is a wake up call, um, and it's almost a shift in tone as well at that point because up until up until that point, yeah, they've been wrestling with it, but it's not had. There's not been the consequences or not the extreme consequences. It's been more the the life consequences, and now we're kind of like, no, this is this is life and death consequences. Does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah, know. no, this is it's the it's the kind of this is this is it. This is what happens. Stop trying to skirt around the outside skirts and look at what you've done. Yeah, kind of moment. Yeah, but at the same time, you still don't lose empathy for them, and I think that's such an you know that's such an accolade to the writing because even after you see that child you you still feel a great sadness for these for these guys that are, are just sometimes they're making the wrong decisions but sometimes the a wrong lot decisions of the time, get made for them a lot of the time they're making the wrong decisions well yes a lot of the time they are making the wrong decisions but i think there's something with the you know Sometimes they're trying, and I think that's the heartbreaking thing when they try. Yeah. And when you think, "Oh, are they gonna? Are they gonna do it? Are they gonna turn it around?" and and then they get sucked back in. I think that that's one of the yeah. That's the bit that's quite heartbreaking. I think. I, I think throughout this movie, I never stopped rooting for Mark Remington to get his life together. Mm. To kind of because everyone wants to see someone redeem themselves. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and kind of what what I thought of when you when we talk, when we when when you were talking about that, uh, it pulled me back to sort of the significance of the title of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, this scene isn't present in the film, but the in the book, the title comes from a scene where I believe Sick Boy and Renton are in a dilapidated train station, and they find a you know a homeless you know, drunk, wandering guy who actually turns out to be one of their estranged fathers. I think Sick Boy's estranged father. And he asks them if they're train spotting. And Urban Welsh has said in interviews about how the reason he called it train spotting is because the actual act of spotting trains is a hobby or a pastime that, you know, people don't really understand. You know, anyone who's not involved and immersed in it isn't going to isn't really going to connect with or understand why these people, you know, so obsessively go in, you know, look for these specific models of trains. And the, one of the successes of the film is that, you know, we, people who haven't suffered from addiction, you know, aren't, aren't going to know what that is like and what, 
and you know it's 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 all very well saying oh you know but i would just kick it or i would just stop it or something like that but then but then when you actually see the movie and you see these you know incredibly convincing charismatic performances and the great writing and the fantastic craft on display you know it totally pulled it totally pulls you into that world and shows you why they are they are so immersed in it and why it would be so appealing especially with all the the societal factors and you know contextual points about you know the situation they're in in scotland and you know you, you don't look at them as scum you look at them as people who have just you know been really unlucky really down in their luck and you and you want them to try and do better yeah this kind of leads quite nicely into t2 actually max i know you've not seen t2 no. um but that scene that you were just describing billy that um becomes a monologue that gets um spoken in t2 oh I think yeah by, was it by sick boy or was it the, the choose life is it the choose life like but the train spot in two version no there's um there's a scene in t2 and it was i remember it because it's quite an emotional scene there's a um there's like projections on the wall and there's a bag in the middle of the room that has that, that you assume has heroin in it, and there's a character kind of looking at it, um, and he's explaining to another character. Um, oh, it's about you know when the guy's writing his memoirs. Which one is it? The Bud. not sick boy, the other man. Bud. Bud. Yeah, when Bud's writing his memoirs, um, he relays that story because bud kind of takes on the role of irvine welsh in the second film um and he he talks about that story about sick boy's father and it's kind of illustrated through almost like shadow puppetry in this in this room um is that ringing a bell i i I I haven't seen it in a lot in quite a long time but i I do have i do i do have vague kind of memories of that yeah, because I think um, if the first film is all about addiction, the second film is it's about redemption in a way. I think I think um, the real one of the things that was significant to me when I watched Trainspotting too, and I went in with you know the highest of expectations and thought it it was it totally it was a total knockout as a sequel to a classic film. Yeah, and one of the things that I real really came after I saw Transporting Two was how drugs are a major part of the story, but it's not all about drugs. It's about mm. you know a, a very uh, the it's about coming from a world where your opportunities are very limited. You know your worldview is very skewed. You know you know there's not a lot of potential, and it's about you know breaking away from that you know trying to you know go on to better things but then what was but then also the consequences of consequences of your actions and how the events of the past will reverberate into the present and how yeah. and how that will affect sort of relationships in the present you know there's there's so many wonderful moments in transporting to that aren't mm. saccharine and aren't cheesy where they you know there are there are callbacks to scenes entire entire sequences in the first film and just where all conversations that the characters have or you know just look or looks they give each other and it just reminds you of you know what that person did to that person in the 
in the first part in the first movie and how that's changed now and how they have to you know deal with that and move on 20 years yeah. later i especially love um the sequence where um he goes to get a lawyer and the lawyer just so happens to be the girl that he yes. hooked up with the school girl I that am. he hooked up with and she gets the last um the last line of that scene, um, you know, she's kind of referring to Renton's girlfriend at the time, and just at the end, she just goes, "She's too young for you." <laughs> brilliant. It's just a brilliant little call, even though it's it's quite an unlikely. You know, she's been put in there for the cameo. You know, that a, a coincidence like that is incredibly unlikely, and it might take some people out of it. But I I loved the fact that she got the last line. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, it was it was really satisfying, wasn't it? And uh, and because we were all so inve- we were all so invested in you know the, the main four, you know Begbie, Spud, Renton, and Sick Boy. You know, mm-hmm. seeing what happened to them twenty years later, it was like it was like encountering you know old old friends and yeah. you know, having their stories sort of brought full circle and fulfilled in in a, just a really satisfying way that, that felt true to the characters and true to the themes of the original movie was just so yeah. uh, was just so unbelievably satisfying and i just thought the the ending was just was just perfect i mean that 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 i mean i don't want to spoil it for max but that when she's reading what it's all right, i'm not listening you can spoil <laughs> when, when she's um when she's reading what when gail is reading spud's memoirs about you know which is you know hit, hit him writing down and processing all the you know traumatic events in the first film and she just reads them all and she kind of sits him down at the table and his son's there playing in the background and he's sort of taking it to her as sort of a you know i'm working i'm trying to do better so i can be back in your in your your lives and she kind of looks at him and goes i've thought of a title for the book and you just you you know what it is you know exactly what it is yeah 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 there's, there's, uh, you know, I, I, there's nothing that can beat the original for me. For me, the original yes. is still superior to the second one. But I, I really, I really enjoyed the second one. I thought it was an, it, it was a sequel that felt like it had a purpose. It had something. It had more to say. Um, that was something extra to what the original was saying. It, it was, you know, about growing up, about adult life with these struggles, because they're all quite young in the in the first movie. I think each of them, it's quite interesting, you know, looking at them together um, as um, almost as one big saga, almost, and kind of looking at the character arcs between them and and noting their progressions and what has led them to be the people that they are from one film to the other. I think Begbie especially is, you know, a really interesting character study um, because, you know, in the first film, he is, he's kind of the ringleader. You want to, you want to hate him, but at the same time you you can't because it's, it's a charisma and it's a, um, there's just something, there's something about him where you can understand why these guys have rallied behind him. There's a, a kind of a, a confidence to him and him being a little bit older than the others as well, a bit of an experience. And then we come to him in T2 and we see the cracks, essentially. We see the home life. We see what his version of trying to have a normal life is. Um, and what it is, is in just incredibly, you know, toxic and messed up. But that's what his 
his version of an ideal family is. And you can see the origins of that in the first movie. It's just a really, it's interesting just comparing and comparing them and seeing how these characters have developed from one film to the other. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, he <laughs> basically causes so much destruction and chaos in the first film. And then you, you see the result of that destruction in his, in his home life and in the disconnect he now has mm. with the world and, and his friends in the second movie. And it just reinforces that idea of, history repeating itself and you know the, the consequence of your actions you know having far you know rippling far down through time when you mentioned the uh, looking at the character arcs between each um between the two movies i mean spuds is just wonderful i mean when we talked about it you know he goes mm. he, he write he writes the trend spotting novel in the movie as a way as a way of processing you know the, the difficulty the emotional difficulty he has he has with um with his past and ends up you know reconnecting with gail and his son off the back of that and that's really really great and really satisfying but um i think the best i think the best moment for it for me in transporting two is when he's having when renton is having dinner in the restaurant with veronica mm, um yeah sick, uh, sick boy's girlfriend and she says, so what's the deal with Choose Life? And Renton laughs and he sort of explains the whole idea behind it. It was mocking the 1980s anti-drunk campaign. And they said, oh, we would add stuff to it. Like, you know, you know like choose high-heeled shoes and you know, choose, you know, big flat screen TVs. And, you know, he starts off saying it as he did in the opening scene of the first movie, you know, talking about materialism and mockingly, you know, take, you know making fun of the, of the advert and the whole ethos. But then as he goes through the speech, he actually starts to speak more about his own reality and what is happening in the yeah. present. You know, you know, choose disappointment, choose not living up to your dreams, and choose your dreams dying right in front of you, and choose, you know, losing the ones you love until there's nobody, you know, left, you know, to love you, you know, alive or dead. You know, choose your future. And, and he gets, it's a fantastic performance by you, McGregor, because, you know, you hear it in his in his voice you know he gets more choked up and more emotional more desperate as he goes along with the speech and then he finally hits you with that one at the end you know until there's nobody left you know yeah until there's nobody left to love you like alive or dead and he goes choose your future veronica choose life and there's just like silence and it's like wow yeah and the shots yeah. you get of his empty stuff you know after you know during that montage when he's delivering the speech is just yeah very 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 powerful that's that's the that and the ending of the big moments i remember from t2 yeah i think there's um the way that t2 is shot um i think also deserves a little bit of a mention because the cinematography in that film is incredible and it it feels it feels different from the original, probably just because I mean, you know, it's more modern. It was made what? How many years after? Quite a, a twenty years. While. Yeah. Say again. Uh, it's 20, made in twenty years. Twenty years. I mean, yeah. So it's going to look different from the original, but I think they they kept some of that spirit. I think it looks, you know, T two looks cleaner. I think there's something in the grain of the original that just kind of adds to that atmosphere of kind of darkness and, and grittiness and um, discomfort whereas the new one seems cleaner but um, just because of the way it's lit and, and the, 
digital i have i imagine it's digital cameras it seemed like digital cameras um but what i love about the second one is the way they use projection and the idea of memory and the idea of nostalgia that kind of runs all the way throughout that film i think they actually project something on a train at some point but there's multiple sequences yeah there's multiple sequences um where things are projected like that sequence when when spud is kind of recounting the story about the the train spotting thing with their with their dad um that um the way that they talk about memory and the the way that the cinematography kind of shows it as being something that is constantly around them constantly with them and unavoidable but without them having to explicitly say it i think i think there's just something so clever about that yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's that great bit where Spud is, you know, walks out the, walks out of the pub into that bit of the street where the, the, the opening chase in the first movie happens, and mm. he literally sees them run past him, you know, yes. under the overpass. Which, yeah, and it just like he, and he, it's not just him thinking back to, you know, you don't get a cut to some grainy black and white flashback. You know, it's happening there right in front of him. He's reliving that moment. Yeah, it's the it's it's the haunting of it. If you're interested, the uh, T2's train spotting was shot on an Ari Alexa Mini um, in Ari Raw. Yeah, so it was digital. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Do we know what the first one was filmed on? Me second. (laughs) (laughs) It was shot on um, an Amtoan thirty five three camera. Which is an Ari Reflex 34. Is that film? I imagine that's film. Let me check. I'm on it. Don't you worry, Chloe. <laughs> I got this. Max the an Ari Reflex 35 is a film camera. It's 35mm yeah. full frame. Yeah. And you can, t- you can tell the difference, but I, I, again, I think it works because obviously they're older. Times have changed. Um, and the way that they have changed the aesthetic of it to kind of show it more being about memory, more being about not being able to move on to develop. Um, you know, I think that works tremendously well. Yeah. And there's enough of that kineticism in the direction and the, the, the visual tricks with the camera. Like there's that bit where it's sort of attached to him and his hand with the mm-hmm. microphone in the, in the bar or, or like the projections or like the shot, the shots of really, you know, bright neon colors and stuff you know, if, mm. in terms of its visual style it feels different but also kind of cohesive and connected with the original yeah absolutely um let's talk about the cinematography of the original because yeah, there, there's to. some of those scenes are absolutely iconic some of those shots are just you know they're burnt in my mind oh yeah they're fantastic <laughs> Do you want to talk a bit about it, Max? So is there a couple of images that you can think of that are just kind of from that film? I've, I've, I've been quiet for a long time, only popping up to talk about technical specifications. So it's yes. like, that's my entire function in life. The scene where the room keeps getting longer and that baby walking across the ceiling really, really hit me. Like, mm. it, it was beautifully done. And I spent the entire time not only trying to figure out how it was done, but kind of just in awe of the, the effect, because it, it's not, it wasn't a practical effect, but it, it was done so, so beautifully, it might as well have been. Because yeah. I really, really loved kind of that effect. I thought, you know, if you're going to show someone kind of losing their mind stuck in their room, 
try to, you know, go cold turkey. That's the way to do it. You, you gotta, yeah. you know, give a, give me some visuals. And that that really stuck with me. I think the. I don't know. I liked the light and the kind of awkwardness that you felt throughout the the, the dive, the not diving scene, the um, the bar, the dancing scene, you know, the the club scene. Yes. Yes. But that felt like he was did not want to be there, and then he sees um, I've forgotten the name of the woman, Diane. 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 He sees Diane, and he's like, goes over, and he tries to get tries to talk to her, and you think, oh, okay. And then the the how uncomfortable in the morning it is when he goes when he realizes that she's underage and the the scene where she just turns up in a school uniform in the morning gets oh me God. every time it's, it's just like, a proper the it's zoom in on the face oh shit moment yeah it's it's funny when you think about the implications I think yeah. Yeah. I think, and then you laugh, and then you go, "Oh shit!" You kind of feel guilty for laughing, but I yes. think that's the whole point: is that it is funny, and there's no way around it. it it's yeah. using classic kind of techni- comedy techniques, mm-hmm. and it kind of forces you to laugh. If someone told you that joke, you'd be like, "That's fucked up," but the visual <laughs> language yeah. in that film, I think, just it makes you feel things that you kind of wouldn't if you were thinking straight. But this film just does not make you think straight. Yeah. Yeah. No. Sorry, Billy, you go. No, I was going to say, I think, you know, I was thinking about this recently, like, why are movies that take kind of an entertaining sort of blackly comic approach to really dark, serious subject matter so appealing whereas you know if you if you i mean there's and there's always going to be a place for really serious dramas that show exactly how it is with no unabashed realism but you know with movies like that that are particular that feel like endurance tests however great they are you know you do kind of want to you want kind of distance from them after you've seen them you're kind of like okay i've done it once you know going to put that down now i'm going to close that box but with movies like Trainspotting and other, you know, famous dark comedies like Pulp Fiction or, you know, more recently, uh, I mean, it's not really a comedy, but it's got kind of like a blackly sort of entertaining edge to it, um, Promising Young Woman. You know, mm-hmm. these movies that have sort of, sort of vibrancy in them and, and, and entertaining parts of them kind of stick in your mind so much more because, yeah, they're just, they're tackling a subject, a, sub, a serious subject in a way that we wouldn't normally talk about. I mean, I think um, there's something about dark comedy that is just so much closer to real life because I think there is, yeah, there's kind of the, um, you know, the feel-good movies which are happy, which sometimes have pathos in them, and then you've got the, you know, the dark movies that maybe show things in, in quite a stark light. But I think in real life, you know, these situations aren't black and white, and and there are moments of levity or moments of humour at times where you really don't think you should be laughing or there's times when you have to laugh because otherwise you'd be crying and I think that's a very human response to a situation I think dark humor is is an incredibly human response to to a situation because you know sometimes life can just be so ridiculous or so difficult um that the only thing we can do is laugh and I think that there's something about dark comedies 
that just bring that out in us. It makes us think about situations we've been in or people that we know that, you know, maybe have made the wrong decisions or have been through difficult times, but that there's levity and, and pathos amongst that, I think. No, I, I think I was just going to add that I think that's all totally, totally correct. I totally agree. And I think train spotting is one of the most successful movies to ever do that. Maybe even the most that I, yeah. that I can think of. And that coupled with what we talked earlier about it having such universal themes of growing up and regret and you're thinking about the consequences of your actions in a community friendship and but also achieving your potential and trans transcending sort of the the social conditions you know sometimes harmful social conditions that are put around you you know have made it so universal and made have made it so timeless you know people are, are still coming back to them train spotting 25 years after it's been released and have this great sequel that you know as as all the best sequels do you know totally reinforce what the original was talking about and acts as a cohesive you know follow-on which you know they they work together they reinforce and improve each other absolutely yeah i mean i i feel like um every time we try and we try and get a topic we just end up going off on how brilliant this film is <laughs> absolutely i don't think there's any way we can get around it no i mean yeah absolutely i i think i don't think it's hyperbole at all to say train spotting is one of the greatest movies ever made yeah no i i totally agree yeah, i think and... it's, it was also the film that turned me on to danny boyle and his collection of work and he's one of my favorite filmmakers working today um to be honest i mean yes yesterday was was uh, eh, but you know ignoring yesterday, <laughs> ignoring I, like yesterday. I mean i thought it had flaws but i did i did <laughs> i did just i, it, I thought it, it just was, about worked it was fine it was it was <laughs> fun i mean i was i you know i i just think danny boyle's um his his older stuff the stuff that really made his name is some of the best filmmaking around in my opinion mm -hmm. i mean you know train spotting shallow grave i love um, shallow grave. yes and it's funny watching shallow grave after i watched shallow grave after train spotting you can see a lot of the sort of the thematic and, and visually you know the, the stylistic seeds he was sowing that he would later sort of perfect with yeah. train spotting Talk about the cinematography as well. I learned that the cinematographer who did Train Spotting also did Billy Elliot, which it I is. thought was fascinating because those are two of my favorite. I I love Billy Elliot; it's one of my favorites. Um, and it's only when you realize, oh, it's the same cinematographer behind this, that you really start to see it across mm. across the you know two very different films. Um, both dealing with similar themes at times, kind of about, you know, growing up, displacement, um, you know, uh, influences and, and what makes you you at the end of it. Um, but, I, you know, the, the, uh, you know story-wise, completely different things. I think, the way I that they're shot. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think a lot of the gritty, socially, social realist visuals of Billy Elliot kind of link up with those grittier moments in Trainspotting visually. Yeah. Or also the fantastical elements. Like I'm reminded of the bit when Billy Elliot is dancing down the street and you're kind of focusing on his feet as as he goes. And that that seems very train spotting. It seems like it's reaching out into something else 
um, a little bit more fantastical. And, and I think that, that that kind of mirrors with train spotting. Chloe asked you about sort of the image that stuck in your mind from train spotting, apart from the obvious ones like the opening scene and the, the toilet. The one that really sticks out for me is the scene where he where he overdoses and he hallucinates falling into the floor, falling into a carpet. Yes. It's almost like it's filmed as though it's a chasm and he's stuck in it. Yes. And then Mother Superior, played brilliantly by Peter Mullen, you know, wraps him up in a carpet and then has to deposit him on the street, put him in a cab and just say, take him to the hospital because otherwise he's yeah. going to die. He just has to sort of leave him to get on with it. And, yeah. you know, how you get that great POV shot where he's just got, like, these black bars on the side of the screen that sort of get more thinner and thinner and thinner as the scene goes along, kind of showing him sort of being caught in this abyss where, you know, he's symbolic abyss or he's, sort of, he's close to death, but also he's just in this, you know, thr- in thralls of addiction and he just can't seem to rise out of it. And just the, mm. the musical accompaniment of Perfect Day oh, by Lou Reed right. is just... Yeah. You know, very sadly kind of ironic, but also this, the song sounds dreary enough that it kind of also contributes to that feel for the scene as well. Yeah, they reuse Perfect Day at the beginning of, of T2, don't they? The, oh, do they? Um, I didn't remember. Yeah, they do. When the credits go, there's like a piano version of Perfect Day. Like you don't hear the lyrics, but it's definitely there. They kind of bring it back as a music motif, um, which yeah. is, is really powerful, especially because that's such an iconic moment in the film that is definitely an image that sticks with me i think one of mine like cinematography wise an image that i don't know why this particular image sticks with me so much but it's the the scene where spud goes in for a a, an interview on speed and oh yeah (laughs) and he seems really far away (laughs) and he's just like (laughs) ranting (laughs) and then the the way that the the fast cutting on him um just i think it's the 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 kind of contrast between um you know his eagerness like you feel almost sorry for him because it's almost it's he's not saying bad things but he just keeps talking and it spirals out of control (laughs) and i think it's like a train it's like a train wreck you can see totally where you know that it's going to crash yeah. But it's just it, like a car crash that you just can't look away from. You just can't look away, and uh, you know Spud's one of those characters that I always, I, I always have a great affection for, just because he's such a likable, he's yeah. a likable goon, really. He's a bit of a likable <laughs> idiot. Yes, absolutely, and and mm. and that's that image of him in the in the room, the kind of like the white interview room that that sticks in my mind. The Wearing a one... suit that fits really badly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I mean, the other one that sticks with me quite a bit is from the opening montage when Ewan McGregor falls onto the floor um, after he's so when he, when he says, you know, why would I do that? I I, I choose heroin. Um, he, you know, that scene where he's kind of smoking something and just kind of yeah. collapses. Yeah, he gets um, hit in the face with a football in kind of one part yes. of the montage, and then he's smoking heroin in the other one and they yes. sort of match cut between them sort of he's falling in both and then as he yes. hits as he hits the pitch he hits the floor in the skag house yeah so, yeah that's just that's a really good one show how, really how like they're just I, I i think i try and think about what that sort of what that's trying to show and i guess it's sort of the every the everyday sort of you know 
parts of his life are now just sort of completely intertwined with, yeah. you know, the, the, the heroin addiction. There's something about football in there as well. I remember football being quite a, a prevalent thing in both of the movies, actually. They both have, um, you know, a real love for football. Um, it's one of the reasons why... Um, is it in the first or the second one where the porn is found in the DVDs and it breaks a couple the of? First one. It's in the first one. Because, yeah. I, yeah, I remember that being a, a, a thing. Yeah, I think it is trying to... It's like what you said, Billy. I think it's kind of trying to show how he has two lives... Almost two different lives that he's living. There's the, the life that he has as a heroin addict and the life that he has as Renton and how they are becoming more and more intertwined um, as his addiction grows, essentially. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a bold image to have at the beginning, at the top of the film. I think. I mean, of yeah. course, you've got that the iconic image of him smiling almost manically when that car nearly runs oh, yeah. her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and of course, the ending image of the first film that where it kind of screenshots on him walking, walking with the with the money. Mm. Um, and that almost gives me, you know, the what's it called? The the French growing up, the the, the French coming of age film. Something the nine hundred blows, four hundred blows, four hundred blows. Not that many blows. <laughs> four hundred. That would blows. sound very bad out of context. <laughs> the four hundred blows, and uh, I mean, this is England. Kind of copies that technique as well. It yeah, kind of yeah. takes that coming of age thing where it kind of screenshots them looking defiantly into the camera, um, kind of signifying a, a, a snapshot in their childhood, and this is kind of. You know, um, for Renton, this is a, a snapshot of his life as he, uh, well, as as he goes off to make a, a new life for himself, and and we'll see what that comes yeah. to in the second one. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I I hadn't made that connection, and that's that's a really great observation to make as well. Kind of in this in this is England, and four hundred blows, those sort of freeze frames at the beaches are are real turning points for their characters. Mm. And what they're probably going to do post the end of the films, and yeah. you know, it, it marks that sort of same point in Renton's character progression. Except there was yeah. kind of that for, for so long. There was that, you know, n- that that question mark about what he what he did, and that kind of left you, left you wondering. But of course, then we got the sequel, and we got that part of the story filled in. But it's it's still a, a really inspiring and also kind of can be viewed as quite melancholy ending as well there was um it's bittersweet it's bittersweet at the end of it because he fucked over all his friends as well to get to that point yeah Yeah, i think it's the thing with spud as well you know where he leaves spud a bit of money um, yeah which again adds to his it kind of adds to his likability there are these moments of tenderness and friendship between the main characters uh, I mean, in the second one, I, it makes me think of um, Renton and Sick Boy in the, um, it, it, you know, Max just posted a picture of it on the group chat, the wallet sequence where they're, they're trying to get credit cards and you see this kind of camaraderie between them. And I think that's part of what makes them so likable as characters. You, you know, you can really connect to, you know, there's there's very few movies like this dealing with film, with themes like this that show 
tenderness and connection between the male leads in the same way that train spotting does. Yeah. I think that it, it kind of goes into that whole thing. You know, when we did an episode about masculinity and what that means for these characters, I think that each of them have their own versions of masculinity. Um, I mean, Begbie being the the obvious kind of at one extreme, but then there's also kind of a there's also a bit of a queer reading of Begbie and and kind of internalized homophobia. Um, did you guys pick up on that? He doesn't like. Does he? Does he? Doesn't he like? Does he spew some homophobic slurs in the first? In the first yes. film, yeah, he I uses think homophobic yeah. slurs in the first film, but then in the second film, um, he's in the car with the um, trans woman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Of course. Yeah, no, and he and he has a. Well, he freaks out, basically. I mean, it, it's one of the <gasps> moments that makes my heart go crazy because, you know, you just think, oh, this poor, you know, woman. But it, it's almost like you can see this. I think that there is a bit of a, a self-hatred with Begbie. Um, and you can see it in the way that he lashes out so feverently. Um, and and uh, then he, he goes out on the pool, doesn't he? He's kind of determined to... to get sex or maybe to confirm his heterosexuality i'm sure i've seen something about a, a queer reading of begbie somewhere maybe i'm reading too much into it but i'm sure I've oh, seen I, this, I, I think that's valid something. i think maybe i think maybe at that time in um i think in that time in that place i think mm-hmm. it, it could well have been quite a toxic environment for um for gay men and that kind of thing and, and, and masculinity as well and also when you're yeah. in the, when you're in sort of the, the social situation that those guys are you know, there's that there's that hilarious speech where you make you Tommy's like, doesn't it make you proud to be Scottish? He goes, it's shite being Scottish. It's the low. It's the fucking earth. But it's but it is just like this self hatred of like where who they are and where they come from. Yeah. That really doesn't help with their sort of you know at that point fairly unambitious and kind of <laughs> problematic lives. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I'd actually like to just talk about one of my favourite quotes from the film. Um, and it's that's actually during the dance sequence where Ewan McGregor is in a, he's in a belly top, which I think is just the most 90s thing. It's like <laughs> Temptation oh. by Heaven 17 playing in the background. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. But the, there's a, there's kind of a monologue that he does when he's kind of going around the dancers. And I think I think that the, the I don't know the exact words, but essentially he says, um, you know, gay or straight, whatever, one day we'll all just be people. And I remember really taking that to heart and being quite shocked that I was hearing that line in that film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially, it was it was it didn't feel out of place. It felt natural for the character to be saying it. I just wasn't expecting that coming <laughs> I've just, found the line. I've just found the line. Do you, do you, do you want me to read it? Yeah, <laughs> go for it. He goes, a thousand years from now, there will be no guys and no girls, just wankers. Sounds great <laughs> to me. <laughs> That's better. I thought he said it more. Just... <laughs> there'll be no guys and no girls, just wankers. <laughs> just wankers. But it's it kind it's of... Strangely, um, you know, it's... it's, it's... <laughs> It's weirdly progressive. Progressive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Everyone should have that outlook yeah. on life. There's no men, no women, just wankers. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I don't think one of my favourite lines of the film. <laughs> and I think, yeah. just again, another, another great thing about the movie, just his, his narration. You know, his, Renton's narration has to be some of the best narration ever put on film, ever written. Yeah. Just because it's so effortlessly witty and yes. funny. But it, 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 it paints the world that the film takes place in so well and it brings you into his world. You, you totally understand, you know, where he's coming from, why he's making the decisions he's making, even if you don't agree with them. And he offers a lot of kind of weirdly progressive, but also kind of funny and insightful views about the world that they're in, about what it could be, what they could be, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it just, and also that, like, when Max was talking earlier about the, you know, step one, step one to kicking the heroin habit. And then at the end, he just, delivers this thing. Oh yeah, we're going to get more heroin to just sort of take the edge off. Hero- heroin re- depos- um, depository. Yes. Suppository. Yeah. Heroin yeah. suppository. Yeah. But it just, it really like, br- you know, brings the story to life, his narration, and just gives so much more information about the plot and also the characters without feeling like exposition. It's always a blast to listen to. I feel like for anybody who's interested in, in cinema or getting into cinema, um, but they're only kind of you know, if the, if the, if you've only ever been to the cinema to see, you know, the big blockbuster movies, or um, you know, you're quite happy in your comfort zone. I feel like Train Spotting is a bit of a shock to the system, but I think it's an amazing place to start to make you yeah. fall in love with cinema. I think. Yeah. It's... You go, Willie. Oh, I was just going to say it's um, it's got enough vibrancy and energy to it that it doesn't. It's not dry or stuffy as as some of the old classics can appear to um, to a new viewer, but it's also there's enough great, really insightful, really well developed filmmaking technique in there that yeah. you know you it does it has as much depth as any of the you know more avant garde pieces. It just repurposes them in a different way, in a more energetic and more viscerally exciting way. It's a very accessible film, I feel, even though the the themes are harsh. I feel like it's an incredibly watchable and incredibly accessible film. And I, I feel like that was, you know, intentional. I mean, you know, the subject matter that the film is talking about, I mean, when you think of it, it's quite niche. Not everybody who has seen the film will have gone through that or be able to relate to the characters in, in that way. But there's something so incredibly human about it, kind of going back to that dark comedy thing. Um, and the filmmaking just matches that to a T. And I, yeah. I think that's why it's one of my favourite films. It's one of those, um, it's one of those rare instances where script, style, performance just kind of melds together so beautifully um, that you couldn't imagine it being done any other way. It just couldn't exist in any other form. No, I couldn't imagine it being done any other way. One thing as well that you mentioned, that, yeah, just a masterpiece. One thing that you mentioned earlier that I just. Me, May it may, it may be the last thing we uh we talk about, but I just I just thought it was worth um touching on as well. Was uh when you when you said that about the musical motifs with relation to Perfect Day, it made mm-hmm. me it reminded me of you know how you know there's a great sense of thrill and euphoria and excitement when they play Lust for Life at the start of the of the first movie, and then they use sort of a modern day dance remix of Lust for Life in the final scene of T two. 
when yes. you know Renton has a you know a similar moment of euphoria, but the context for it is entirely different and entirely more positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's a there's a motif of that uh, you know when Max was talking about the room extending as well that I I loved the way that they utilized that in T2 the yeah. way that they brought that back as a motif but in a just a completely different it means something else the effect means something else now at the end of the second film after the journey mm. that Renton's been on yeah. and uh, th- that was that gave that sent a frill through me when the when the uh, camera started moving back and we started seeing the room extend you know, it's one of those moments where I felt my heart like it was at the end of the film, but I felt my heart going faster. You know, I, I felt myself getting excited. Yeah, no, I, I, I had the exact same feeling. I just thought, you know, what a fantastic way to just cap off, you know, thematically the, the two movies. And the other, um, the other significant musical motif that I remember is, um, of course, the iconic ending of the first movie. You have You Born Slippy by Underworld playing in the background, mm. you know, those, those iconic sort of blissful shivering synth chords playing as he's doing the choose doing the new version of the choose life speech and walking off with the money into the distance. But then when yeah. he is doing the entirely sadder, you know, more regretful and up- updated version of the choose life speech in the in the second one. And he's, you know, reminiscing about the past about the past and also, you know, what his future, what his present, what, what his life looks like now and how that has changed in some ways for the worse. And, you know, you, you can really faintly hear Bourne Slippy in the background and it just, you know, once he was so optimistic at the end, when that, at the end of the first movie, when that track first played, now his feelings are just entirely different. The update of the music as well for the second one. I mean, I... Um... I didn't know who Wolf Alice was until I watched the second Trainspotting oh, film. Oh my God, Silk has to be one of my favourite pieces of music ever, I think. The way it's, from the trailer, I was like, what the hell is that song? But yeah, and it yeah. just, it, it, caps, it caps them. I mean, it's not the final song used in the film, but it's sort of like, it's the big emotional point, isn't it? That it punctuates yes. and it just does that perfectly. But the, the lyrics in it as well, and it's one of those, it's, it's a, way where you you know that this song has been chosen with purpose it's not been chosen to give an artist a leg up it's not been chosen uh, for fun it's been chosen because the lyrics and the feel match so perfectly with what the original was about but using more modern techniques it's just it filmmaking decisions like that just make me so excited it's yeah. just kind of like <laughs> it's like you know this is kind of the kind of thing that you inspire to you know you aspire to um as as a a young filmmaker you kind of look at this stuff and you go holy shit this is you know this is what people do these are you know i'm just having a little freak out i want to watch it again (laughs) (laughs) i haven't seen it in a long time i want to watch it again now i want to watch it again and and look out for more details because every 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 decision every creative decision just goes over so well whilst just not sacrificing the thematic depth or the the great entertainment factor yeah Yeah, absolutely are you gonna go watch t2 now max uh well yeah i'm I'm gonna play some video games first but then i'm gonna then i'll do it priorities (laughs) hey he's gonna he's gonna take some time to mentally prepare himself and then oh i mean might kill me if i don't so (laughs) you know it's it's uh 
I've got to got to factor my life into this. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I don't think we're going to have time for the game, but I've, no, I, I, I thought not. Which is when we went over the hour mark. I was like, yeah, okay. Yes, I I've loved this discussion. It's Me one too. of my favourite yeah. films. I've really enjoyed uh, talking about it with you guys. Um, favourite of mine as well. I want to, you know, if you get a chance to go see this film in the cinema, I'd say do it. Maybe don't take your your significant others who don't know what it's about though. <laughs> well. <laughs> Don't lead by Max's example. <laughs> well, that's a good way to live your life, honestly. Don't <laughs> don't lead by Max's example. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> do as I do as I say, not as I do. Don't even do as I say. Do as nothing. <laughs> I, I I will always give you bad advice. Don't do as I say and don't Aww, do as I do. That's not true. You're you're a good in Max. Thank you, Chloe. <laughs> that being said, I'm just here sitting in, sat in silence in response to that. <laughs> that being said, don't do it. Right, and on that note, um, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. Yep. We will be back next week uh, with another episode of Keep Swimming. Thank you for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.